this week on the Back Table Podcast. If you emphasize achievement all through medical school, then they're going to think of residency as, again, I need to win something. I need to get the best residency spot. I need to make sure I don't have any red flags on my application when it should be more about where I'm going to thrive. Where am I going to be the best resident that I can be so that I can be the best physician I can be? And we need to help support the learners in that transition of thinking. And we can't support them in the transition of thinking if we're lying, if we're telling them that competency-based medical education is what they need, but then we actually use these metrics that are all based on achievement. Like we have to actually talk the talk and walk the walk. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable OBGYN podcast, your source for all things obstetrics and gynecology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on Backtable.com. Hi, this is Amy Park. I'm a urogynecologist at the Cleveland Clinic. I'm here with my co-host, Mark Hoffman, who's a minimally invasive gynecologic surgeon at University of Kentucky. It is my huge pleasure and honor to have Doctors Maya Hamoud and Dr. Helen King Morgan on the podcast today, Backtable OBGYN. Justin, by the way of introductions, Dr. Maya Hamoud is the J. Robert Wilson Research Professor of OBGYN and Professor of Learning Health Sciences at the University of Michigan Medical School. She's the Chief of the Women's Health Division and Associate Chair for Education. She holds many leadership roles nationally and is a senior advisor for medical education innovations at the American Medical Association with a focus on health system science and coaching. She has over 90 peer-reviewed publications and has published four books. She's the past president for the Association of Professors in Gynecology and Obstetrics at AFCO and a member of the National Board of Medical Examiners Board of Directors. Dr. Hamoud is the current principal investigator on a $1.75 million Reimagining Residency Grant from the AMA on Transforming the Undergraduate to Graduate Medical Education Transition. Dr. Helen King Morgan is a clinical professor of obstetrics and gynecology and learning health sciences at the University of Michigan Medical School as well. She is the director of residency preparation courses at Michigan, currently serving as a chair of the APCO Undergraduate Medical Education Committee and is a co-investigator and program evaluation lead on the $1.75 million AMA Reimagining Residency Grant for APCO Right Resident, Right Program, Ready Day One. As an optional fun fact, I just wanted to also tell you that I actually went to high school with Helen's brother-in-law, and I know her husband, Dan Morgan, from just being another urogynecologist. And despite multiple collaborations over the past few years, we have yet to meet fully in person, but hopefully someday. And another fun fact is that Mark knows these guys from fellowship, where he did his MIGS fellowship at the University of Michigan. So it's a small world. Small, small GYN world, right? It is a small GYN world. And I was the clerkship director at the University of Kentucky for six years when I got there. And I had no idea what I was doing, and so Maya just gave me all of her documents and said, just change the M to a UK and just put your name on it and say you made it all up. I was like, I'll take your stuff, but I'm giving you credit. But she was unbelievably helpful to me in taking over a clerkship without any, uh, without without as much support. So I'm eternally grateful to you for that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, guys, for coming. And, you know, in this episode of Backtable, we wanted to talk about the transition from medical school to residency with a particular focus on the undergraduate medical education to medical education transition to residency in broad strokes and particular how it pertains to OBGYN. So I just wanted to start off by asking, can you tell us a little bit about your background and experience working in the space of undergraduate medical education? Well, first, I just want to say thank you so much for having us. You know, for both Helen and myself, this is a obviously a very passionate topic for both of us, and we've been working in this space for many years. You know, Helen has been my partner in crime <laughs> with this, and I don't think either of us could have done it alone. My interest in it has been a long time ago since I've been clerkship director, and I've been advising students and working with them for 20 years now, and I've been seeing them going through this transition. And I think that for me, this has become even more personal and more real when I saw my daughter applying through this transition, going through medical school and applying a couple years ago. I started working in this space before she started applying, but it 
as having her see her go through this and what she went through, it even made it realized it so much more that I'm even more committed than ever to just seeing this work go through and seeing how things have changed with how I started to advise just 20 years ago to now and how important it has become and seeing all the anxiety and how students are prepared and how their focus has shifted from how do I actually get into a residency program rather than how do I be ready to be a good resident is actually kind of heartbreaking. Rather being focused on education, it's become being focused on getting into a program. I think we really need to change the narrative around that. How about you, Helen? I wanted to add that I started residency 20 years ago, and I can still feel so viscerally what it felt like to be on labor and delivery. And I hadn't been in any sort of real significant clinical situation for like nine, 10 months. And knowing that I wasn't as well prepared as I should have been for that first day, you know, actually delivering patient care to patients and thinking about what was my last part of medical school like? And it was great to be home by 12 o'clock, but is that really the best way of preparing learners for this big, important transition? And like Maya mentioned, it's impossible to talk about preparation for residency without talking about the residency application process because the residency application process has become such an inefficient monster that has taken over kind of the narrative and all of the energy of our learners and our educators at this point. And it reminds me when I was a third-year med student, I did my sub-I or acting intern, whatever we called it at the time, the beginning of my fourth year. That's when you do them because you need your letters. And then I, I think the first time I was a clinical resident actually with responsibility. It had been like over a year and I'd done anything with OBGYN. And I was on nights and my chief was like, go upstairs and check that patient. And I was like, I checked, make sure she's like in the room. Like, what do you mean <laughs> like check her? I mean, I, had, I hadn't done OB since my third year because I did my onc up sub I. Yeah. I mean, to say I was underprepared is, is an understatement. I mean, I, it had been two years since I'd done, I did it beginning of my third year, my, my third year rotation. So it had been two years since I'd seen an OB patient. It was crazy. Yeah, thank God they had those plastic little check things where, you know, you could put your fingers on the little board. I don't know if they still have that on L&D, but we had this old plastic one that we'd use. But yeah, to your point, it's like thinking back on it, it's so crazy how we're just coming in and it's drinking from a fire hose. Well, I just wanted to ask the, the next question, which is, and I think Maya alluded to it earlier, but what inspired you to work on the residency application process? You know, I in advising students, when I started to see year after year how my advice started to shift and how my worry about individual students started to shift, where I never used to tell students, go do an away elective. Oh, you're going to be fine. You know, oh, only apply to 20 programs. And then I started to see, oh, maybe you do need to apply more. Oh, wait a minute. Maybe you do need to do an away elective. And I started to start to see how the students I worry about, I said to, you know, I mean, I have Michigan students, right? Michigan students are great. I've never had to worry about them. I started to see the type of students I worry about where they apply to and how many programs they apply to is starting to change. And I started to tell some more students to, that they need to maybe to have to apply to more than one specialty. Then I realized that things are changing. And also what we started to see students doing in terms of I have to worry, am I, you know what, I can't scrub into this case because what if I got an interview offer and I need to make sure to respond within two minutes, otherwise I'm going to lose that interview offer. What I was telling you about that when I saw my daughter go through it, because she was applied into a different specialty, she was applied into anesthesia, I always saw the anecdote where she gave me all the sign into all her accounts because she had an interview that she had to go through. And she said, those are all my sign-ins. If I do get an interview offered during that period, please make sure you go and sign me up for that interview. And she gave me all her signs. I said, don't worry, I got it under control. And I made sure everything is signed into my computer and everything. And I'm sitting there. And guess what? She got an interview offer. And I was not able to get the interview for her because I was five minutes late. And I'm just thinking, this is crazy. So this does actually happen to students. You know, so this cannot be how we do things. In what world is that what we do to anybody that I give you an interview and then you can't do it? Like I failed as a mother and now I'm failing as a professional that we do this to applicants and students. And I was like, this has to change. And then we started changing in our specialty 
that now this does not happen anymore, that no, hopefully no program is offering more positions, more interview offers than they have positions. And this has spilled to other specialties. I mean, this should be the standard. Now, when we look back, I can't believe this actually happens. So we're starting to put standards into our specialty and this happened in our specialty and now it happened in the standards in other specialties. And we hope that we are able to put more things like this to relieve as much anxiety as possible because this process should not be like this. And if I can add, I think that we're all kind of of similar ages on this call and we can reflect back on when, when we went through the process. I was like a medium, you know, I didn't have great metrics. I've never been a good test taker. So I was like a medium student and I applied to 12 programs and those were the 12 programs that I wanted to go to. And it's just a totally different time now where, you know, applicants are applying to 60, 70 programs and the programs don't know who actually wants to come to them. And so all of the inefficiencies ultimately are just really hard on the learners. Yeah, that was my experience too. I remember applying to 16 and I accepted at 12 and then for interviews and I remember a couple years ago, I had a third-year medical student in my clinic, and she told me she was applying to over 60 programs, and somehow I just missed that. It just all of a sudden happened, and I just remember thinking, that's really expensive, and you have to travel to a lot of places. I think virtual interviews are, are definitely have changed that, but yeah, that's that's totally different than 20 years ago. Just one of the things that I wanted to ask you, when you were talking about offering more interviews than interview slots. Do you know on the magnitude of how what programs were doing, were they offering twice as many or? It was quite variable. I think that some programs were offering twice as many. Some, it was like airlines where they overbook and then they just see what they get. We don't know the magnitude, but I think the most I heard of, and I don't think it was necessarily an OBGYN, it was twice as many. Wow. There are a few studies that showed that it was the surgical specialties and anesthesia that tended to do it more. But I think that's one of the things we're most proud of in our specialty. Four years ago, our specialty committed that we would not offer more interview offers than there were spots. And it's been so impressive to see how everybody in our specialty has really tried to adhere to that because it's the right thing to do. Absolutely. Well, this just sort of segue into this. So you have this AMA multi-million dollar grant to fund your work. And then can you tell us more about this grant and the work this grant is funding? This grant, it's a five-year grant. It has two main components. One component is focused on the actual application process to try to set standards around the application and the interview process and also to try to reduce the number of applications. And then the second part is readiness, and I'll let Helen talk about the readiness piece. The second part, it centers on how do we actually equitably prepare learners for the transition to residency? So can we provide coaching? Can we provide a curriculum that's available to students, whether they're coming from a DO background or an IMG background or an allopathic medical school like Michigan, because we want to try to start to level those inequities about what's available at the transition. Yeah, that's interesting that you bring up about which background. I, I, I think 20 years ago when I was applying, there weren't that many DOs, but there are more DOs now. And I mean, it's just so competitive to get into medical school, but just so I know and our listeners know, have the number of residency spots gone up? In OBGYN? Yeah. It's gone up a little bit, yes. Okay. It's gone up by, I would say, maybe in, in the last few years, maybe a couple hundred spots. Okay. Oh, is it that many? I mean, I looked at this a few years ago. I mean, they're opening up medical schools like all over the place, like hundreds of new med students, thousands of new med students graduating every year, and they're adding like dozens of residency spots. I mean, like the, it's not one-to-one, right? I mean, there's my understanding, at least, was that there was far more new medical students graduating than there were new residency spots available to them. So I think if you look at the total number of residency spots available, it is still a lot more residency spots than there are MD and DO students. I think if you add the international medical graduates, then there are more applicants than there are spots. Okay. But the demographics have shifted though, right? Like there are now fewer and fewer international medical grads filling up the remainder of those spots. That is correct. Right. So it used to be, oh, this is where we would get a lot of our candidates from. And now there are fewer of those. Yeah. And I think the other challenge is that 
the MD and DO applicants, they're desiring certain specialties in particular that fill. So there are a lot of open spots, for example, in internal medicine and family medicine and some other specialties that our US MD and DO students don't want. For example, OBGYN and psychiatry have become a lot more desirable recently than when we started, like when we applied to residency. Psychiatry has become a lot more competitive. OBGYN has become a lot more competitive. And those did not used to be. Emergency medicine used to be the competitive one. Now it's not competitive at all. It's like there was a lot more, there was, there was like 300 open spots recently. And if you recall, like I recall when we applied into OBGYN anesthesia, I didn't fill at all when we applied. So there are radiation oncology, remember? It was like- It was hot. It was hot. Now it's like, it doesn't fill, right? Yeah. So, I mean, there, I think it depends on how you look at it and what the desirability of a certain specialty for USMD and DO applicants, basically. Can you just speculate on why you think OBGYN is so popular? Obviously, we are believers, but I'm curious what when you like have your ears to the ground and you talk to the medical students, like where is the popularity come from? I have my own theories, but I want to hear what you guys think. Because they work with Amy Park and they're like, uh, whoa. No, I, I, that's what I, that's what I want to do with my life. I'd like to hear everybody's opinion on this. I'd like to start with Helen, actually. Helen, why do you think? I think it's a, a number of factors. I think that we all know that our specialty is 85% women right now for female identifying learners at the residency level. And we know that, you know, demographic wise, there are more and more women who are entering medical school. I think that medical students now are even more connected with the links between what we do as practicing physician and health policy and like advocacy. And so obviously there's a, a great fit with our specialty. I think that we are a surgical procedural specialty that is, you know, we, we make a decent pay and money does come into account to some extent among the different specialties that are female predominant. I think that we have higher salaries compared to others. So those are the, my hypotheses, not based on any evidence. I don't know about that last part. My daughter was going into anesthesia. She's like, you are crazy. I'm going to work a lot less hours, make a lot more money than you. I, I really wonder if it's the advocacy piece that's attractive to people. I feel this generation is very... Uh, righteous and they want to make a difference. And I wonder if it's an advocacy piece. I have no idea. I'm curious about your hypothesis, Amy. Oh, yeah. I, I definitely think connecting to a specialty that you really can connect the values. And I think people are very, not just advocacy, but just that we've always been very good about taking care of women across the, the lifespan and really connecting in a longitudinal fashion with our patients. And that's the same for internal medicine and psychiatry and family medicine. But we also have that procedural component. I also think that we as a specialty have gotten really good and creative because there's so many women in our specialty about job sharing, about part-time work, about hospitalist positions, and just seeing the flexibility surrounding that. I also think, I mean, I'm not sure because I've only been in certain places, but I think we're pretty open, you know, and I think that being open and being role models in a lot of ways, not to say that I, we are, I am a role model, but just that people can identify with juggling home life and the kids and doing academic stuff. And I don't know, I think OBGYNs, we struggle too, but I think that it's normal to be at work and be able to talk about your families and then talk about something serious at the same time. That's definitely part of our culture. And we're a very family-friendly culture, and I think people really appreciate that. And you can bring your whole self to work. And I think you don't have to bring your whole self to work. You can leave some of your whole self at home. But but, but I do think that that does not have to be suppressed. Yeah, I think to all of your points, you see somebody and think, oh, I want to be like that person, right? And if, if they're more like you, if they are someone who you see yourself being more similar to in whatever way, you know, when I was thinking about doing OBGYN in my med school class, there were five of us who went to OBGYN and three were men. There's a lot of men in our department, a lot of male faculty in our department. And I remember going on the interview trail going, where are all the male applicants? It was like, you know, I think the only other guys I would see on the trail were guys in my med school class. I mean, it wasn't that striking, but there was there were times when I was the only male candidate. I don't know what I've, what I've been drawn to it if I was the only male interested and all the faculty were female. I don't know, but I think that certainly has a role to play. I mean, definitely you see people 
and think, oh, I would want to be like that person. And if there's people that seem more similar to you, and we have so many amazing female, some strong female leaders. I mean, I learned from them all, right, along the way. And I'm very grateful for that. But I think if you're a student and you see Amy or Mai or Helen at work, I would want to be like them. I mean, for sure. You know, I think that's a, that's a big part of it. Yeah. I just remember I was at Georgetown before and we would have the medical students come in. It just got so popular. Out of a class of 150, it would be like 17, 20 students. I mean, how many students are going to OBGYN now out of a typical Michigan med school class? It's depending on the year, probably between 12 to 15. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're, we're having similar numbers in Kentucky, I think. Oh, really? How how big is a class? They're around 150. I think those are the numbers. It's bigger than when I was there. Wow. Well, I mean, it's, hey, it's a, it's a great specialty. What can I say? <laughs> right. So how is application fever playing out for medical students and in particular OBGYN? Well, we were up to what, 70 applications last year, so it keeps going up. This year was the first year that OBGYN used the signaling, and we're hoping that in the long run, we, we didn't expect the number of applications to go down this year, but we're hoping uh, we're going to be studying the effect of the signaling. So this year, students were able to put three gold signals and 15 silver, which means that they were able to tell programs, I'm interested in you. Like you're my highest priority or I'm really a highest interest and high interest. We'll have to see how programs use those reference signaling. And we're hoping that with time that will decrease the number of applications. Because the truth is that no student is truly interested in 70 programs. Like I saw with my own students, once they pick the 18, they're like, hmm, what number do I pick now 19, right? Like because nobody really is interested in 70. So we're hoping that that number is going to decrease. It's very costly. And I don't know that students really adapt learning 70 programs to know where to apply. We are trying to provide tools for students to wisely choose which programs they want to apply to. We're hoping to be able to decrease the number of programs with time, but it's going to take time to be able to do that. Only one thing to add is that when programs were receiving the volume of applications that they were receiving before we implemented the program signals, they were kind of forced to use metrics to filter because otherwise, how else can you decide between 900, 1,000 applications for five spots? And the metrics that they were using for filtering, we know that there were so many negative consequences to using those metrics. Step one score, step two score. We know all of the bias that is associated with those scores, even with grading. Those aren't great metrics either. And we know that none of these metrics actually predict success in residency. And so there were so many negative repercussions to the application fever, which is why it was such a priority for our work to figure out how to solve this issue. I talked to somebody who is now a dean, and she has a whole formula based on all these metrics. I don't know if you used a formula to advise the students, but it sounds like it was somewhat commonplace. The formula was for the students or for the program? For the students. Like, if you have this kind of record honors or I don't know what. And then it, I, I have no idea how she did it, but she would advise students, okay, you have to apply to 60 or 70 or whatever it is. You know, I always say it's not about the number, it's about which programs. So if you really know what programs to apply to, you don't have to apply to more than 20. If you apply to programs that are not programs that are going to interview, you can apply to 150 and they're not enough programs. It's the programs that align with you rather than the number. So I don't know that it's an absolute number. So if you don't know and you're applying randomly, you're probably going to have to apply to more. So I don't know how a absolute formula works. It feels like a lot like in high school, you had your high school counselor. And like if you went to a good school where they knew all the people at all the other good colleges, they could like, you should apply to these schools. Let me call my friend at this school and we'll, you know, we'll get interviews or whatever. It almost feels like if you have a school that has like connected or if you know what programs and where, but if you're at a school that doesn't have those connections to that particular specialty, it can it can feel, I imagine, like you're floating. I mean, you know, I have a lot of students that come to me because I've trained elsewhere outside of Kentucky and I've been on committees and things around the country. So I do know pe- more people than some of the other faculty. But yeah, I don't know that we have a system where there's like, oh, this is where you belong. These are the programs you should apply to. You have to kind of know people. Yeah, and Mark, if I can add on, I think that was essentially one of the big problems that we wanted to address because there's so much change that you can make, but we wanted to make sure that the change that we were working on 
was aligned with our mission and values for what we were trying to accomplish with the grant. Because to Amy's point, there are always like clever equations that you can come up with, but you don't want to come up with clever equations that's based on a flawed system, right? You don't want to come up with equations that are based on metrics that shouldn't be used. Like that's just going to perpetuate the problem. Right. Like all the U.S. News World Report stuff with the law schools. Like exactly. You're using biased or, or worse racist uh, metrics that are building these names into things that, that may not be representative of truly what they are or what they're doing. Back in the day, I hear these stories from like my uncle or whoever. You would just make a phone call and say, this is the person you need to take in this spot because they're great. And when the match is supposed to get away from that, but then you have a thousand applicants for five spots and it comes down to, they all look great. I'm just going to call my friend and see who I should take. It seems like it's gone like full circle to just any of them are fine. I just need to know that they're going to show up on time and be good people because they're all on paper outstanding. Yep, that's a great analogy that it, from my father-in-law who, you know, in prep school would just say, I want to go to these Ivies and they would make the phone calls and make it happen for him. It was almost like we were going back to that system again because of the application inflation. You had to make the call and say, hey, Mark, I want to tell you about a student. So we wanted to make sure that many of our decisions in the grant were based on data. And so then we looked at the data and we saw that the system of making phone calls was creating inequities, which of course is no surprise. I think that's the definition of a smoke-filled back room. So we know that students who are coming from allopathic medical schools, and we knew that white students and Asian students tended to have more faculty making those calls than the students from underrepresented backgrounds. And that's why a program signal system has to be in place so that it's equitable and transparent and available to everybody and not just available to the people who know Amy Park or Maya Hamoud or Mark Hoffman so that people can signal without the phone call. Because applicants were trying, they were trying to send emails, but that doesn't, it doesn't help when program directors are receiving hundreds and hundreds of emails from applicants. Can you describe what the signaling is? I mean, I, I actually even talked to our clerkship director and we discussed it. And, you know, I think people just want to know more. So tell us more. What is it? Yeah. So at the time of a submission of an application, the applicant then puts in what their signals are. For our specialty, we opted into the 15 silver signals and the three gold signals. Other specialties have a smaller number of signals, but we wanted to do the 18 again, kind of based on data-driven decision-making. And then the program directors then receive the signals. And we know that different programs are gonna receive a different number of signals. Of course, that's gonna happen. And so programs are gonna use them differently. And that's part of the evaluation we're gonna be doing this year of, of how did programs use it? How should we advise applicants? Cause it's always a challenge the first year to know how to advise applicants to use this. But long-term, we're hoping that this will allow programs to be able to holistically review the applicants who are signaling because they have a better sense of who actually wants to come to Michigan or Ohio or Florida, as opposed to I'm sending my applications everywhere because I have to. Super interesting. So do you think that this is going to take the place of step one or some other, if I mean, you know, and this is a segue into using holistic review and ensuring equity in the process. Because I follow Dr. Carmody on Twitter and, you know, that's one of his big threads is is instead of step one scores, people are going to use the signaling as, as a screening mechanism. Our publications was the other one I think he wrote about too. It's like, we have to measure something, right? We're not very good at identifying easy to measure metrics on character, um, follow through, grit, and so we measure what we can, not always what matters. And so we'll just look for the next thing we can measure. And, you know, and like that's, I think, one of my mentors in the College of Medicine. So, you know, we would all take that BC student who showed up early, stayed late, was always honest, worked hard, like just did the right thing, like always was honest and truthful and responsible and cared about patients and did the work. Because at some point, like all the students are smart enough if you got into med school. So those, you know, doing well in those tests and publishing things does take some of those traits of, you know, hard work and grit. But I also know some like sociopaths who published a whole bunch of papers, but I wouldn't want them caring for my family. And so like it, it's not an easy task you guys have. Grateful that it's you guys doing it, not me, because it seems like an incredibly important, but also incredibly difficult task. 
Well, you know, this is this is the issue. We are trying to take what I actually call a very homogeneous, accomplished group of individuals. And I mean homogeneous intellectually, who are all gonna be can be great doctors. If you think of a medical school class, you got probably five percent who are outstanding in whatever way you want to define outstanding. Five percent who probably are a little bit like, you know, I'm not sure I want them to be, you know, whatever. And then you got the 90% in the middle. Those are the people we're trying to separate out. There's no way you're going to be able to separate them. And that's what we spend a lot of money, faculty time, resources, trying to separate them out. So every year when our program director is trying to, oh, do we move this person up, this person down? This I'm like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I say, you know, have you ever had a class and you're like, Dawn, I should have had the person after. I'm like, no. Because you're trying to choose people who are very similar, we're trying to separate them. Really, you sh we should have a system that if you really want those top to try to figure them out, and if you want to make sure you don't get those bottom, figure out how not to get them. But everybody else is the same. And the truth is, all the metrics that we have, whether we call it holistic, whether we say let's pick up those characteristics, whatever, those people have been screened multiple, multiple times. You're taking people who are screened, you're trying to screen them again, you're trying to screen them again, you're trying to screen them again. It is actually really silly what we try to do. So what are we looking for then? Because like you said, the right resident at the right program. We need to try to do value alignment, honestly. You need to look at who is the population at Ann Arbor. This is what we talk about, value alignment. What is this program going to provide for me? And this is where we, you know, am I interested in research? Is this a program that's going to be able to provide me research? Am I interested in really, is this a program that has a great urogynecologist, a great mixed program, because it's something I'm interested in eventually. It's about value alignment because everybody is going to train great OBGYNs. That is the truth. And that's why you need to look at those other values and see what you're seeking. And also look at what is this program going to be able to help me with? If I'm someone who needs my hand to be held to get through a program and this program cannot hold my hand, that is not the right program for me. I really should be thinking about that. If this is a well-resourced program and I need those resources to help support me, that's where, and I need resources, that's where I should go. I mean, this is where really we need to start thinking about these things. I was thinking about, about that, and I know people hate the word fit, but the word fit is important. Because about what support do I need? Is this program going to be able to provide the support? What are my career goals? Is this program going to be able to provide to help me with my career goals? I mean, that's why I, that's, I felt the match worked, at least when I was going through it years ago. When I went to interview, I felt, you know, and you got to talk to a lot of people. But ultimately, the program that wanted me is where I ended up. And you know, you rank a bunch of places and the one that picks you. And I don't know that it's one that I necessarily saw myself at when I was making my rank list, but after four years there, I just couldn't imagine having trained anywhere else. I can't imagine that there was a program that was better for me, for what I needed, not necessarily for what I wanted, but for what I needed. Do you know what that tells me? That tells me that that program picked the right people for them because that means they supported you when they brought you along. And when you think about when you apply for a job, do you go to a place that you don't like when you take a job on? You don't, right? And does a place take you that they don't like you? They don't. Because you got to thrive at that place and they're going to want you there. And I think that's how residency selection should be. I'm just wondering, you know, we're talking about, I don't know, they're probably the range of like 25 to 30 year olds. And when I look back at myself in that age, I thought I knew what was going on, but I didn't really have insight into myself. Like, how are you able to guide people into value alignment? Because, you know, and I think Helen gave a great ground rounds. I'm going to just plug it right now. But just talking about like being attracted to that shiny object and then, you know, going for it. And you don't necessarily know that you need more support or handholding or you like more choose your own adventure independent type programs. I mean, it's hard to know. Yeah. Because medical school is not an environment where you usually choose your own adventure. Yeah. It's very structured. Yeah. This is what I have to say, the magic word coaching. <laughs> we, we had Kara King on the show and I just took the uh, coaching course at AEGL recently. So yeah. We, so tell us how coaching applies here for students and residents. Helen Morgan will tell you. <laughs> I mean, I think 
that we're skirting around the fact that too much of medical school is about individual achievement, right? And the systems that are in place prioritize that. What grades can you score? What number can you get on a test? And ideally, we shouldn't be emphasizing achievement. We should be more emphasizing competency-based achievement. Like, what do you need to be a competent physician? And that's hard. It's hard for learners in their 20s. It's hard for learners in their 40s like me. Like, all of us need somebody to help us, to give us feedback, to help us figure out what our strengths and weaknesses and what are the goals that we set to address the opportunities for growth. And that's where coaching is the really nice model for how do you help learners with this transition? Because then if you emphasize achievement all through medical school, then they're going to think of residency as, again, I need to win something. I need to get the best residency spot. I need to make sure I don't have any red flags on my application when it should be more about where I'm going to thrive. Where am I going to be the best resident that I can be so that I can be the best physician I can be? And we need to help support the learners in that transition of thinking. And we can't support them in the transition of thinking if we're lying, if we're telling them that competency-based medical education is what they need, but then we actually use these metrics that are all based on achievement. Like we have to actually talk the talk and walk the walk. Identifying, you know, yet learners like before they get into med school, right? I mean, not necessarily for grades, like finding people who have more malleable minds who are... I think we, I think I call it the growth mindset. I think it's right. it's, it's the master adaptive learner, right? It's coaching towards the master adaptive learner. And it's the, you know, we, we teach quality improvement, right? And the master adaptive learner is really doing this continuous quality improvement on yourself, right? So I'm always checking where I am, where do I need to improve? I do my assessment. I look at the outside assessment. I do my self-assessment, identify areas for growth, and I keep growing. And if you truly think about medicine and, and the medical knowledge, it changes all the time. You know, I think about lifelong learning. I really need to always be identifying what areas I need to grow and what do I need to learn. And we need to set that from day one this continuous cycle of improvement. And if we focus more on that rather than what I'm going to achieve the highest grade, rather is where do I need to continuously improve and that growth mindset, that's how we get there. That was my grand rounds I gave at Michigan on his own failure and how we select these people who from like the womb to find these people who don't fail, right? who never fail. That's how you get into med school. That's how you get into residency. That's how you get into fellowship. I mean, we put them in a, a working environment where failure's part of the job and we're all, I don't want to say all, but many of us are ill-equipped to deal with failure. And, you know, so teaching that from the very beginning, I mean, I've got perfectionist kids and you're like, no, no, just get better. Then you don't have to be good. It's not about that. It's a, it's a hard group to try to teach that to, I imagine. Yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking about all the things that you guys have said. And it sounds like, you know, obviously there's stakeholders in terms of program directors, departments, medical students, and really what you're talking about is concentrating on the learner and like having a, a focus on supporting this transition, this educational process in getting out of the mindset of service, which is always something that any RRC review is going to hone in on. And when you're going for recertification, <laughs> curious what you have heard so far about the signaling process and from the applicant side and from the program side. So we just came back from the APCO faculty development seminar and all I want to tell you is both program directors and students came up to me and said, please, whatever you do, don't take that away from us. That's great. <laughs> that's anecdotal, but that's what we've heard so far. People love it. That's great. And so wh why did they love it? Because everybody doesn't want this inefficient system where they can't really express what the applicants want to be able to tell programs what I really want. And they feel like it's been inequitable because it depends on that phone call from this person or that person. And the program directors, you know, they have all these thousands, hundreds of applications and they want to be able to tell who is really interested in me. We have to see, you know, obviously, just like everything else, we have to see the final outcome, which is after match day. <laughs> so we'll let you really know after match day, but we're hopeful that it's, it's worked and it's done its job. I think it's going to be a good thing. And I think it will make the process more efficient. I think anecdotally, people really like it a lot. 
we'll have to see how it goes with the outcomes. And Helen, have you heard anything different? No, I mean, it was a really significant change when you think about it. And the fact that most of us have heard really positive things is a testament because change is hard. But even in the midst of change being hard, people have been really excited about it. But we're going to study it. We have many different plans for how we're going to study it because there's different data sources and nothing is all under organized one roof. But we have many different ways of how we're going to evaluate the effectiveness of it. How many specialties besides OBGYN have adopted the signaling preference process? 16. Oh, wow. 16 specialties? Wow, that's amazing. Yep. And OBGYN is leading the way, it sounds like. Well, I would say it's ENT that led the way in the signaling. They did it before anyone else. We are the only specialty currently who has two-tier signaling. And we're getting a lot of requests because people find that fascinating. <laughs> They're like, should we be doing two-tier signaling? We're like, we can't tell you. We haven't studied it yet. We're the only specialty have two-tier signaling. So it remains to be seen. How is that? That's different than the others. So we'll see. But 16 specialties. But it was ENT that started two years ago before everybody else. And what has the ENT playbook been when they adopted it? They love it. They think it's been extremely helpful for programs and for applicants. It actually has made it more equitable in the sense that who they don't call top applicants academically are more likely to get interviews. It doesn't change the match rate because ENT fills no matter what. And that's really important. I, I think this is a point that has always get across to applicants. It does not change match rates especially in competitive specialties, because they fill no matter what. It changes the distribution of interviews, and it matches potentially different people, because it's not always your top people with top USMLE scores who are matching, which is what you want, actually, because you want a more diverse class. So it's people who normally would not be seen by program directors based on scores alone who are getting interviews and who are matching, which I consider a success story, honestly. So you get a more diverse applicant. If you consider diversity based on distribution of scores. On scores. And then it basically gets your foot in the door. That's correct. You would not have been necessarily considered in a prior iteration of the application. Yep. Gets you that interview. Okay. Yep. So is it, is it better to focus on where people want to go more so than the people who've... I mean, again, I, don't, I think there's no such thing as a true meritocracy. I mean, I know all the or not all, but many of the reasons why. I mean, the, look, I'm a good example. Of, I've had all the benefits in the world of my family and my gender and my all the things. So, like, Are you calling yourself a Nepo baby? <laughs> <laughs> my dad's a doctor. I don't know. Like, I mean, yeah. I, got, I, got, I got into one med school, so I, got, I only got into one med school. So no, no, I no. I, I come can't. from a very medical family. Maya, obviously, her daughter is going to went to med school, too. So, No, but I mean, but, but being a doctor's kid, helps me, you know, live a nicer life and get, you know, I, I didn't have- It's a family business. Yeah. Look, it, I, I had every benefit awarded to me, but, you know, just based on my life lottery ticket that I had for sure. But yeah, there are people that work hard and get, you know, do amazing things that are, are some of those people who may not interview as well. I guess, I guess it's just, it's not the interview itself, right? We're talking about who gets the interviews just because they can't want to be at lots of places that they could lose out to someone else who just wants to be at a specific place. I'm trying to think about some of the potential negatives. I'm not, because I, I think it sounds like an, an important system and a good system, but I'm trying to think of some of the, but what, what are some of the potential downsides of, of a system like this? What do you worry about? The students who should not, who should not be happy with that are the students who, I, I think there's some potential, traditionally, what's considered top students who are losing out in the system, right? And so what message does that send to those students? I mean, how do they... Losing out from a place of... Privilege. Many choices. Yeah. So uh, if one applicant was going to receive 30 interview offers and now they're only going to receive 25, is that really taking away agency from that person? They're still matching. No, they're not They're not, They're not. not necessarily still matching, right? Yeah. That's the story. So if, there's, if it's just five fewer interviews, that's one, th what's one thing. But if they're not matching, that's a big deal. They're not. It done is all a the big right deal. Stuff. But this is the argument is that is getting a step to a score of 260 doing all the right stuff. Don't know. So I, I have this, what I think is my million dollar idea, thinking about it from a student perspective. But if you've got a student like this, who's done all the right things, chose a specialty that matched where the counselors thought they should go. Like, you know, if you're 
doing really well and you pick a competitive specialty in the school says that seems reasonable and they approve it and they do all the things they should be doing and don't match. Does the school have some responsibility? Because God knows that medical school costs have gone up. We talk about all the changes since we all went to med school. Tuition's the one that always shocks me how much that's changed since I was in med school. Does the med school have any responsibility for these students if they do it all right and don't match? Because that's a tough spot to be in to have $400,000 in debt with a not great interest rate and no job. I have this, I, my idea was if you do all the right things and, and check all the boxes and you still don't match, the med school should give you your money back. That's been my idea for years. I would answer your question, except that I thought this podcast was limited to an hour and <laughs> not a day because I could answer your question. <laughs> well, we'll have to bring you back for part two then or something some <laughs> yes. other time. But. Well, anyway, but that's a, for your grant, just something to chew on a little bit. I thought that was, I just felt like the med schools should have some accountability. I think that we absolutely, we could talk about this for hours. I think it's the responsibility of the medical school to make sure that the student is aware of what the opportunities are and provide the right support in terms of advising. I think that it's a complex, complex set of decisions that deal with match. And we're not even close to that, right? We're not even close to a, a near perfect system where somebody can do everything right and still not match. Like we're, we have so many problems in the system itself that we should be addressing, like application inflation and the fact that step one score was being used in a ridiculous manner. But no, I think it's a provocative question mark that uh, I love the way that you're thinking about it. We've talked about the step one scores uh, as a screening tool. Now that it's gone to pass fail, how has that impacted the application process? Are people just looking at the signaling and the step two scores now, or how is it playing out? Numbers of publications is what I've heard. Is that Step two didn't go to pass-fail. That still exists. No, no, I know, but I'm just saying, are people looking at step two instead of step one? I don't think we know, right? We're really early in the process. This is kind of one of the first waves of application without a, with a pass-fail step score. I think that everybody wants to know how to do this better. And if we just use step two score as a surrogate for step one score, then shame on all of us. Like we have an opportunity to really redefine what it's supposed to look like. And we should all be thinking about what it should look like. And I absolutely applaud people like Brian Carmody for really challenging us to not fall into the cracks of don't start using number of publications because that's about as inequitable as step one score, right? And so I think we have to keep asking the hard questions about what do we need to address? What are the problems? As you study this, because I know we're early, I'm just curious about best practices. I know that, you know, on social media, we talked, you know, I saw a lot of talk about holistic review and ensuring an equitable process. How can we ensure that? How can we ensure equity and inclusion in the application process? Amy, I'm going to be very honest in my answer with this. I don't know that anyone knows what holistic review, number one. Number two, I don't know that anyone knows that any measures that we use are actually predictive of what makes a good doctor. As of right now, we actually uh, had a call with some very brilliant minds around the country earlier today to discuss this. There's nothing right now that anyone can actually point to and say this is what tells you what that we can actually measure or that we know in an application that would tell me that this is going to be what predicts what a good doctor. So the best we can do right now is when you ask someone what a holistic review is, my opinion is looking at a lot of different components and taking that in mind. Whether you you know you look at academics, you look at their past experiences, you look at distance traveled, you look at what what there's a lot of different things in the application. Now, how many people are actually capable of doing that and reading an entire application and actually digesting what that means and comparing applicant to applicant? I think that's very difficult to do that right now. I think people are you know, trying to their best to do that. I think what the signaling has helped with is that some programs might have have reduced where they focus them leading those applications based on. So if you're a program that usually gets a thousand applications and now you have 300 signals, some program directors might have chosen to just do a cursory read of the 700 and really put full attention to the 300 with the signals, like read the entire application. And I think that's a fair thing possibly to do because if you have 18 signals and you did not choose to give me a signal, well, how much is your interest in me really? Do I need to spend an hour reading your application? I think that's fair. 
And I think this is probably one of the signals I have with applicants. So if you gave me a signal, I'm committing to really reading your application in full to see where you want to come to me. Now, we don't know. We're assuming that. So we're gonna, we are very committed to studying the entire process, to asking applicants how they decided where the signals are going, and to asking program directors how they use them. And that will inform what we do with the next cycle. So the remains to be seen. TBD. One of the things that I wanted to touch on, because Helen has a whole grand rounds on this, but this whole equity in the process and how OBGYN has gotten so competitive. And as we've gotten more competitive, we've gotten a little less diverse. And can you just talk about that a little bit? And, and both of you, just to hear what your perspectives and take on the process is. I think that there are some clear problems that, I, I mean, I think there's this one thing. First, the number of Black residents in OBGYN residency has gone down in the past 10 years. And that's what Amy was referring to. I'm sure there's multiple reasons for that. Um, some positive that they've gone into other s surgical specialties and some very negative that the metrics that we were using because of application and in inflation were disproportionately impacting students from underrepresented backgrounds, plus the whole idea of, you know, making the phone calls to the faculty making phone calls on applicants' behalf. And, and just, you know, all of the different you know, structural problems that we're becoming more aware of that we know that we need to address. I think that there are all of those reasons that are contributing to that number. And I, I love bringing it up just to highlight how it's, it's, we all have to draw attention to it because that's exactly the wrong direction we want that number going when we know that we need to be addressing all of the patient outcomes in much more equitable ways as well. When I heard your talk and I read your article, I just thought, gosh, it is super challenging because if we use the traditional metrics, they favor a certain applicant population. So just keeping that in mind and, and in the review and then looking at the candidate who may not be the high scoring multiple research paper type of applicant, just kind of keeping an open mind of what we want to achieve in, in our creating a residency class. But it's like I like to say it's like dating you know, trying to find the right fit or the right school. You're, you're signaling, you're trying to get a good supportive relationship. It's it's hard to, to figure out when you don't really know. Well, and I think it brings back the point we talked about at the beginning is that rep rep representation matters, right? So we know that having doctors that look like their patients, right? It means a lot to their patients. When we see yeah. attendings that look like us, we, we're more inspired to do what they do. And so having a less diverse workforce in obstetrics and gynecology could have some pretty negative impacts on the type of candidates we select and ultimately the type of workforce that represents our specialty at the expense of our patients, which is ultimately why we're supposed to be doing this, which is caring for patients. And so all these things you're doing have extremely important impacts, not just on the education of our students, but ultimately in patient care. So I, anyway, it, it really is a huge undertaking. I'm I'm always impressed by what you guys do, uh, and this is this is just more of the same. So anyway, I, it's it's big stuff. You know, change is very hard, like I said earlier. But Maya has been such an effective leader because she's been able to get all the different stakeholders to work together in this space. And I think that one of the ways that we've been able to do this is also to emphasize exactly what you guys were saying. What is the actual problem we're trying to solve? John Dalrymple has really taken the charge with the standardized letter of evaluation to say we can't just have letters of recommendation speaking a bias. We know how much inequity there is in the words that people use in letters of recommendation. So we need a competency-based standardized form. And we have to emphasize why is this important? Because what we had before was a flawed system. And so we have to keep moving towards the ideal of what we want it to look like and not try to make all these machinations on what we have already. That's such a good point about the letters of recommendation. There's a really great sheet on action verbs to try and implement and then adjectives and, and verbs not to use. <laughs> I can't remember where it's from. Is that from Arizona? Or I can't remember, but I think it's very impactful to, to keep all those things in mind in just the comments about the personality and just trying to keep it really very focused on the accomplishments. But also people do want to know something about 
the personality we are we are human but at the at the expense of sounding biased or overemphasizing that is is i think that the the standardized letter sounds like it would really be helpful in that regard so i just wanted to ask another question because this this is now january 2023 and i can't help but ask about this dobbs decision like how did it affect the application process to OBGYN programs because some of the things that i've been hearing is residents telling me that they're not going to apply to fellowships in states where it's going to, uh, you know, abortion is banned. And the top candidates, maybe they're not going to apply to these states. So are we going to have, number one, I guess, top applicants not be applying to states that have restrictions? Or are we having going to have workforce issues down the line? I'm just curious what your takes are. Sounds like an APCO scholar's capstone project? We are looking at this data with the AMC and the US data. It's still early, but I can tell you just like very quickly looking at it, I don't think there are going to be any differences from previous years. You think it's just too competitive? That's correct. You know, obviously, I, I think we'll still fill all the spots. I think that the distribution isn't going to be that much different. I'm sure we'll be publishing on it. Just at first look, very quick, cursory look, it does not look that much different. That does not mean long-term. We don't know what's going to happen long-term, obviously, because remember that the decision came out in June. The students already had been thinking about programs. Nobody knows. I, I mean, we I've told my students that everybody's going to get training where no matter what they go, and that's true, that everybody's going to go get good training as a resident, unless you're somebody who wants to train in complex family planning. I don't know that you, you know, you're still going to be able to learn how to empty uterus wherever you go, no matter where you train. I mean, that's part of the RSC requirements. We will have to see long-term what it means in terms of workforce and all this. That's something that we'll have to watch long-term, but I don't know that we're going to see an effect at the residence training level. OBGYN is, in terms of competitiveness, I it seems like it's a top five specialty now. Is that correct? If we measure competitiveness by how many, how they fill USMD, DO, IMG, I think it's, I haven't looked exactly like that, but I think it's reasonably competitive. It's one of the top six to seven, I would say. I was just surprised by how many people or how many applications people had to put in. So, well, let me just ask a couple questions to round out our session because I and I'm so appreciative of, of all of your insights so far is what are some best practices to facilitate the transition to residency? We want to make sure that learners have opportunities to know what's expected of them in residency, right? Everybody knows residency is hard, but if you don't even give people a sense of what are the, some of the challenges, then it's hard for them to even prepare. And there's that time at the end of medical school when you're paying tuition. Like I, I do feel that resources should be spent in that time helping learners to figure out what they should focus on um, when they're starting residency. And I'm very fortunate at a school like Michigan that our school offers eight weeks of residency prep, you know, curriculum for our students going into obstetrics and gynecology. I know that other institutions don't have that, which is why there need to be resources that are available to all learners, regardless of their background. And Karen George and Sarah Wagner and Abby Winkle have created a wonderful readiness for residency curriculum that I think two thirds of residencies use this year, which is a testament to how it can be done. General surgery has created a, a curriculum as well. And it's not medical knowledge necessarily that's in the curriculum. It's more uh, exactly what Maya was alluding to earlier. How do you set goals? How do you manage time? How do you know when to ask for help? Because those are the things that we know that new residents need. Uh, those are the skills and knowledge that new residents need when they're starting. I think that there has to be some component of coaching because self-assessment's hard. We, we don't know what we don't know. And that should be part of the transition to residency, as should the feeling that you're entering a community that's welcoming to you. And that has also been a source of challenge for, for many learners when they're starting in a new place away from their, potentially away from their support structures of medical school or their family supports. And so how can we create a community at the GME level that's welcoming to the, to the new learners? That's, I feel like, where we need to move towards. 
That's amazing. Where can people find this toolkit? I don't know if I have the answer to that right now, but I can get back to you. We can put that in the show notes. Great. For our listeners to find. Perfect. Thank you so much. Well, I just wanted to see if Mark has any other questions. I My mind is exploding with all of the... No, to Maya's point, we could make this last as long as possible. But for our guests' time, which is extremely valuable, I'll, I'll leave it there. So good to see you guys. Tell everybody back at Michigan I say hello. And I hope you and your families are all doing well. Tell Dan I said hey. Thank you. I will. Thank you so much. I, I think this is going to be really helpful for lots of stakeholders to listen to. And, and we appreciate your time and your expertise and your hard work and making the process better because it, I think it sounds like it's already getting better from everyone's point of view, the program directors and from the medical students and the clerkship directors who are advising them. And it's, it's very stressful. So thank you for all the work that you're doing on their behalf. And we appreciate you so much. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate you having us and giving us the opportunity to talk about something that we really are passionate about and working really hard to try to improve this process. So thank you. Yes, thank you. Thank you both. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests on Backtable OBGYN are their own and do not reflect the views or positions of their employers or any entities they represent.